welcome to part two, folks. Definitely listen to part one before listening to this, because I think it will just make a whole lot more sense if you do that. Um, but if, if you're, if you're, you know, you, you listen to that, you know, you know what's going on, you know what the deal is? Welcome. We are now just going to jump right into talking about the principal trio in this franchise. So I, d- I do think that The Legend of Zelda just likes doing a whole lot of things in thirds. They just like their threes. There's three spiritual stones. There's your princess hero and bad guy. There's there's just all kinds of stuff. I don't know that that deal with things in threes. There's a triforce, three triangles, you know, that kind of a thing. Um, so the thing is that there are a lot of characters and uh, stuff in in across all the games that appear in this franchise. But I don't think we have time to talk about any side characters, so I have to focus on Link, Zelda, and Ganon slash Ganondorf. I have spent a great deal talking about these three in earlier seasons and earlier episodes, but I will try my best to to quickly recap the following. If it's not a quick recap, I'm, I'm really sorry. So their role in the game and story, beyond just being central characters, it's like, what else do they do? Their relationship to Hyrule, slash the land they appear in, and the significance they have in lore. So, I'll go in order with Link, Zelda, and then I'll end off with Ganon and Ganondorf. So, the thing with Link, he's our hero. We know that he's meant to be a neutral character. He doesn't necessarily have as much going on, personality-wise, you could say. Or just even that, like, who he is as a character is just dependent on his role as the hero, typically. Um... And also, uh, the you know the people who worked on this game have always made it so that Link never talks. He's he's a he, he's a quiet one. Um, and this isn't like I mean sometimes Link can appear quite stoic, but then there's certain games like uh, Skyward Sword where you know Link actually very clearly has a personality. You know things can surprise him, things will make him happy, things will freak him out, things can make him sad. Like. Things like, you know, he can experience emotions and that's cool. But anyways, typically, like I said, his role in the game and story is being the hero and then just saving the land. So then as a result, his relationship to Hyrule and the land he appears in is usually being like embarking on that quest to save it. So if there's some kind of trouble brewing, then he is responsible for being one of its protectors or saving it because it's already experiencing ruination. So in the case of a game like Link's Awakening, where he's just kind of thrown into this new environment, he has to complete that task because there's no way for him to sail, to to leave the island. There's no way for him to do that. Plus, he was brought here for a reason and he was instructed to do something and Link's not the type to just run away from a quest. Uh, He will do the thing. You know, that, that, that is his thing. He will do the thing. If there's anything to know about Link as your hero, it's that he will do the thing. So, he will get stuff done, maybe more plainly put. Um, so, like I said again, his relationship to the land is mostly based off of that function, in that he is its savior, or one of its saviors, you know? Because in Breath of the Wild, there's technically more saviors, more people tasked with saving and protecting the land, but yeah, things go kind of south for them. Anyways, um, the significance Link has in lore is that, well, Skyward Sword actually is the game that helps us establish this, because Link could really be anyone, in the sense that Anyone could technically be the hero and their name just happens to be Link. 
Um, but Skyward Sword kind of just helps to make it so that it's like, well, there's a reason he always has this green tunic and yeah, he wears this hat and like the way that he looks, there's kind of a reason for it. Um, Cause the first hero who was the Link of Skyward Sword, that's how he looks. And it's like other Links kind of just end up following in that tradition. Um, so because that very first Link in Skyward Sword was responsible for forging the Master Sword to become what it was, because the Master Sword did not start off as the Master Sword, it had a different name, it was known as the Goddess Sword. It becomes that sword because he goes through many, many trials to make that possible. Um, with some, you know, divine intervention here and there, you know, play a song or two, enter this, you know, silent realm. Oh, goodness, those silent realms enter these realms and acquire the thing and then it will power up the sword and then you're getting one step closer to making it look like the sword that everyone knows so because the hero and the sword tend to be kind of like you know go hand in hand <laughs> makes sense because you know you hold the sword with your hand anyways um the thing is that because those two things tend to go hand in hand link's role in the lore is wielding the master sword he is going to be responsible for wielding the sword of legend because it's always associated with the hero when he acquires it how he acquires it actually those things are kind of important because as shown in ocarina of time link gets it when he's too young because he needs well i don't actually know if the game gives us an explicit explanation as to why he has to take it out but more so that he needs to get to the spot where the triforce is before anyone else does because he has to find a way to protect it like it's kind of just I, I don't know that there was a, a like a distinct concrete game plan for how the protection of the triforce was actually going to happen i don't know that link like link and maybe more specifically zelda thought that far ahead but it was more so that it's like well if you take out the master sword then it's like well that that'll help um but because link was too young he was too young um it just was not it just was not possible to, uh, what's it called? Um, it was just not possible for for him to to wield it. So then there was major repercussions for that, for that happening. Now, in a game like Majora's Mask, the Master Sword's not a thing. Link is a kid the entire game. You are never an adult at any point in time. So the Master Sword's just a non-entity. So that's why the fictional chronology that kind of came about with the emergence of Skyward Sword is the fact that when the Master Sword appears in certain games and whatnot, like the role of the hero is a kind of altered as a result. So if the Master Sword's not there, it doesn't ultimately mean that Link is like just kind of there. It just means that his role also shifts with it. So Link kind of, this is this is all to say, this is a very long explanation, but this is all to say that Link technically needs something external in order to kind of solidify his role in the lore or how he, he has any impact. Usually it's through kind of some, some kind of external force, whether it be uh, Zelda herself or the sword, uh, because there are potential theories that can be had about Zelda's impact on Link as well. Because essentially both of their role in destiny and fate and things like that actually stems from the common point of the goddess. They like the goddess actually has a role in that too. Um, because again, she the goddess Hylia wielded the goddess sword originally, and then that sword with like when it's with Link will eventually become the master sword. But it's not the master sword when the goddess Hylia wields it. There's if you listen to my Skyward Sword episode where I review the game, I do, I think. Talk, uh, uh, touch on some of this lore as well. I also have an episode on the Silent Realms. 
Um, and then my model of triangulation series, I do touch on this a whole lot more. So I don't want to get into the nitty gritty because I'm here to explain this kind of franchise as a whole and these characters and whatnot, not into like lore stuff, uh, but it, you know, I can't help myself. Anyways, that is that is the point I do want to make. Then Zelda, because, because this franchise is named after her, the role that she actually has in lore is always going to be really important to a degree. And the thing is that, yes, there are some games that don't take place in Hyrule. And in Link's Awakening, Zelda isn't there at all. She, like, there's no, like, hint of her or anything. Even in Majora's Mask, you get a flashback of Zelda at most. That's it. And it only happens, like, once in the very beginning of the game. But um, certain games, like Link's Awakening, don't mention Zelda at all, um, which is really interesting. But it still also stands that the majority of games do deal with something that Zelda has to confront. Something something that Zelda does has an impact on things. So her role in the game and story, first of all, it just varies. So her involvement in the story can, she's either very active or she's just kind of in the background. It's not that she's doing nothing. It's just that the how involved she is can be either understated or not known at all, or like it, how active a participant she is, it just varies. Because um, Link, it's pretty consistent that he's just the hero, right? She's always the princess, um, although technically Skyward Sword shows us that she doesn't actually begin as the princess. The royal family would eventually come into existence and then she would be born into that, but it, she doesn't actually start off in a royal family. Um, so Zelda, except her Skyward Sword iteration, Zelda's usually a princess of some kind. Um, so her being royalty allows her, like warrants her to have certain knowledge such as knowing about the Triforce and things like that. Um, but then other times how that's shown, it just, it depends with her. Her relationship to Hyrule, especially when she is positioned as being a part of the royal family, her relationship to Hyrule is like, there's, there's a lot of, I guess you could say personal stake for her. So not great enough time because because she is the princess and because she has these you know visions and stuff that Ganondorf is going to create all kinds of trouble she's very concerned with what's going to happen to the world around her like she's you know she's like even though yes Link and Zelda were like they end up making that mistake of inadvertently helping out Ganondorf she did it with good intentions and also she was right in the sense that Ganondorf was going to cause problems like I mean, you already know because that's the way the game has to go that he's going to be your bad guy. But it's like still from like a storytelling perspective, the concern that she shows in the world around her and things like that is, I think, much more mature. Like it, it, she's not really talking like a 10 year old in that sense, um, even if she you know, has that naivete. But in any case, uh, she is very much concerned with the, the world around her and and that kind of a thing. Um, and then, you know, you have games like Spirit Tracks where she's actually a part, like she she's an active, she's a very active participant. Um, so yeah, that's pretty cool. Then her significance in lore is that she is very significant. She's very, she's very significant, that makes no sense. She is very significant. I tried to put emphasis and I just totally botched it. The point is, is that Zelda has connections to the goddess Hylia. She will have a version of her powers. I did want to mention with the relationship to Hyrule as well with Zelda, is that in Breath of the Wild, she is supposed to have been invested with the powers of the goddess and everyone is relying on her to come through with that. But the, basically the preceding events of the game, the things you don't play through in Breath of the Wild and only know based off of memories and cutscenes and stuff like that, is that Zelda could not harness her powers in time and it led to a lot of things 
not by her fault, it led to a lot of things just kind of falling apart. All the plans of the good guys just completely blow up in everyone's faces because they just, they were not prepared. And Zelda wasn't ready, most of all. So when she actually activates her powers, she jumps right, right into action and she stops Ganon, or more specifically Calamity Ganon, from creating more ruination than he already has. Um, so the thing is that in that Legend of Zelda game, she's of course very concerned with what happens to the world around her, especially because people she cared about lose their lives in the process as well. So it's like, it's just, just it's, it's a tough, it's a tough time. But then in terms of the lore part of it, it's the fact that she is invested with divine powers. Yeah, I don't know what happened there. It, I was just saying that she's a vessel for the goddess. Zelda has divine powers, it's important. Yeah. Okay, lastly we have Ganon, or Ganondorf, our main baddie. He appears in lots of Legend of Zelda games. He is usually evil, and as shown in Ocarina of Time, he sometimes succeeds at what he sets out to do. And that's, I mean, kind of interesting, I guess you could say from a storytelling perspective, because it's not a traditional, like, uh, whatever story progression where like you're uh, you're working your way towards beating him eventually it's that he can win and then you just need to like do the best you can in the worst situation possible but then when you do defeat him it, it's a it's like hitting the reset button and you can make things right um but yeah he's he is our villain his role in the game and story is being the villain should go without saying now his relationship to hyrule or the land he appears in is quite interesting because sometimes he actually has like there's something a slightly more personal at stake or he is just kind of doing it because he can so in ocarina of time i'm sorry i keep using this game as an example it's just my favorite game to use for examples but in that game ganondorf belongs to a group of people he was raised in that in that environment but he basically aspired to be more than just a king because basically in the in the cult the cultural group he belongs to um he would become king by default or like the kind of the chief ruler of the group but he aspired for more he's way more ambitious than that he was power hungry and he wanted to rule over hyrule so in very you know sneaky covert ways he found a way to win over the trust of the king so the king would just think that, you know, Zelda's just making up stuff when she talks about the dreams she has about, you know, dark clouds appearing and that she believes that Ganondorf is the person representative of that. Um, and that, you know, maybe they shouldn't trust this guy so readily because I don't know, he's sus. Um, so the thing is, is that uh, with Ganon Ganondorf is that his motivations stem from wanting to have more power and he belongs to a group that lives in Hyrule, but like it's not like he actually cares about what happens he just wants to have power he just wants to rule over every everyone to that degree kind of thing um but then by contrast with calamity ganon in breath of the wild in which he typically appears in his more you could say demonic uh uh pig form kind of thing um you do see him in a different version in the first phase of the final battle where he's technically more arachnid like he's definitely more of a monster he doesn't actually he's not He's not human-like at all in Breath of the Wild. But when he attacks, it's like he like he comes out of the sky or something. He's not someone who like lives in the land. It's like he comes from somewhere else, or even if he does, he did originally come from Hyrule, his connection to the land is just causing ruination in a way that is much more consuming and, you know, wholly affecting everyone 
that's it's it's different than the Ganondorf of of uh, Ocarina of Time. There's a there's a lot more that goes down and that goes wrong. I think in in Breath of the Wild, it's hard to compare the two games. They're quite different um, in the way that they approach their villain and how the villain impacts the land. But yeah, so Ganondorf can sometimes just feel more of like an external force rather than someone who has a bit more of a personal stake. And then his significance in lore is that Ganon is probably the, you know, like he's probably the reincarnated version of Demise, who was the original baddie that appeared in Skyward Sword. So Demise would have been this kind of demonic entity that fought the goddess Hylia. She found a way to seal him away, but it would never be permanent. So the thing is, is that what happens, what unfolds in the events of Skyward Sword is you constantly trying to seal away Demise in his imprisoned form, which I'm sorry, looks like an avocado. You have to seal him away like three times but he will eventually break out because he, he does he, he has someone on his side. Demise is not alone. Um, he's got someone helping him. Um, I, I don't want to get into that though. But Demise will reappear. He will break through the seal eventually, and then Link needs to fight him in this final battle to put him away for much much longer. Um, but the seal will differ from like the goddess's seal. So it's like Demise is prone to coming back again. He'll come back in different forms and whatnot. This is not the end of Demise's impact. Ganondorf was like he doesn't strongly resemble Demise, but it's like be like from a behavioral standpoint, from the motivations, from kind of what drives that ambition, like just from like, almost like a personality thing. There's a lot of similarities between Ganondorf and Demise. So it's like his role in lore is be is coming from that primordial evil force. Like it's like Ganondorf is pretty connected to that, especially because Demise has a beast-like form. Um, uh, and has that more human-like form. Ganondorf's the same. He typically has a human-like form, but can also have the beast-like form where he turns into like a giant demonic pig. Ganon's first ever appearance, I think he's called like Prince of Darkness or something. Um, he's called Ganon and he appears in the very, very first 1986 Legend of Zelda game as a pig, like as a, I would, yeah, like, yeah, that, that, yeah, like a boar, just like a slightly anthropomorphized boar, but not quite. So it's like, because there's that aspect to him, I'm like, there's a very like strong case obviously to be made for that. So he's important. Um, and that was a lot to get through as you could probably tell, but these, these three are just, they're just really important in a lot of ways. And the way that they hinge lore and stuff like that, all that, all that fun, all that, yeah, enjoyable stuff, fate, destiny world ending scenarios yeah it's all great um yeah they're, they're these three are pretty important because zelda it's she's named that's that's the name of the franchise links your hero ganon's your baddie i think you know what you need to know about them um and you know it beyond the basic format of meeting a hero and a villain kind of thing or a hero camp and a villain the these three characters i always find really interesting to talk about i do really like talking about them i just i end up repeating myself so much and i've talked about them so much that ah, you know the one thing that always stands out here though is that it's never the legend of link right the legend of zelda in a lot of ways which i don't think is that obvious the legend of zelda is actually quite true to its name 
um, especially as the franchise has evolved over time. The Legend of Zelda Skyward Sword is the Legend of Zelda. It is about Zelda. It's actually, even though you're the hero and you do all this stuff and you go through all those dungeons and you solve all those puzzles and you become stronger and you forge the Master Sword, the story is technically not really, a, like, the legend is not about Link. It's not about him becoming the hero. It's about how Zelda uh, helps to form what will become Hyrule, how she starts that. Link's a part of that process too, to be fair, but she's she's uh, she helps to inaugurate that. So Skyward Sword, it, it's definitely very much about her. Ocarina of Time is about what Zelda wanted for Hyrule. And obviously things don't go well in the end, but Zelda also has powers of her own and, you know, she's responsible for like or not so much responsible as she is knowledgeable she's knowledgeable about the right kinds of things that you would not know about otherwise if not for her so in a lot of ways zelda games are about they're, they're they are about her it is the legend of zelda um since i don't have time to talk about char other characters in this section and whatnot we shall hear about some of uh some cultural groups now. Let's get into demography. So what are some cultural groups you can find across the various games that appear in this franchise? Let's get into that because, oh boy, I've been talking for so long. So to clarify right off the bat, not all Zelda games share these groups, nor does the rule each nor does the role each group play remain consistent across the games. For example, some races actually began as enemies before later becoming anthropomorphized and then also being included in this canon of cultural groups that would later just become, you know, staples. It's like, oh yeah, I expect to see this group because of these environments or something, like that kind of a thing. But this will be definitely a more brief section that looks at the kind of uh, groups that you can meet in the Zelda franchise, starting off with the Hylian race. This is typically your average race. This is the race that uh, Zelda and Link actually hail from. Um, they are like the ordinary citizens. There's nothing too special about them. A lot of, uh, or not maybe a lot, but certain cultural groups in Hyrule or in Zelda games, they tend to have elf-like uh, elf ears. Uh, so the pointed ears kind of thing. So because everyone kind of looks like, you know, there's like, uh, I'm not wording this right. So the average citizens will have the elf-like ears and then other cultural groups will just have other qualities about them that make them more fantasy-like or just give them some anthropomorphic qualities, but they are not human. Um, which brings us to the Kakiri or forest dwelling races. So broadly speaking, there will be a version of some kind of forest dwelling uh, race if not something like the Kakiri. So in Ocarina of Time, we get the Kakiri, who are a group of forest-dwelling children, essentially, who never exceed the age of 10. They don't age. Uh, they don't age that way. So they kind of just stop there. So they just always look like kids. Um, but in other games, um, the forest-dwelling race differs. So in Breath of the Wild, you have the Koroks, um, which are like forest spirits, and they're not very human-like. Uh, they tend to have like, you know, leaves and things like that very stubby limbs and, and whatnot, but they're not really human-like. And then there's the Kikwis in Skyward Sword, which aren't human-like at all. They have these like little beaks and these round eyes. Um, and like they don't actually look like Kiwis, like the bird Kiwis, but like whatever, Kikwis, they, they just have a look to them that's 
definitely more animalistic than than anthropomorphized. So forest dwelling races, they will be in the forest and they will have qualities that make them associated with that locale. Then we have the Gorons or mountain dwelling races. So the Gorons are specifically the Gorons are rock eating are a rock eating group. They are almost like armadillos because they can curl up into a ball and you know roll around and things like that so they have that quality to them because they they technically do have like a back shell but they kind of just look like rocks on their skin so it's not it's not like a, like a prominent shell like with a tortoise for example but it's just kind of like a part of them so when you see them rolling around you'll see some of those like stone patterns on their backs but it's again not like a, a protruding shell um but yeah they can curl up into a ball and things like that Use certain like prominent Gerudo, uh, not sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself. Certain Goron figures, uh, some of them like actually have like, uh, like, like uh, hair and things like that. Because actually, a lot of Gorons tend to be like very round and then also kind of bald. But then usually, like the chief or something, they'll have like you know spiked hair or something like Darunia or Daruk in uh, Breath of the Wild. Darunia is in Ocarina of Time, and then. Darunia is in, sorry, Darunia is in Ocarina of Time and Daruk is in Breath of the Wild. I'm getting so mixed up. But mountain dwelling races are not restricted to the Gorons because, for example, in Skyward Sword, there were also the Magmas, which resemble uh, moles, like rodent-like creatures or something like that. They're like a mix of different animals. They're not strictly one, I don't think. But Magmas also exist and they, you know, dig underground and whatnot. So you have your mountain dwelling races and they will be living in the mountain. Then there are the Zoras or your water dwelling races. I don't, I can't really think off the top of my head. This is actually the group that I was mentioning where I said some groups in the past actually used to be enemies. The Zoras or Zolas, I think they're originally called, um, used to just be like enemy fish uh, type of thing. Because um, I know in A Link Between Worlds, the, I guess, Zoras are def like they're enemies, I think. Like they'll spit like, you know, balls of magic at you and it hurts. It's not a fun time. Um, but uh, the, the Zoras used to be something like that before becoming just a part of these other cultural groups. And they're essentially anthropo anthropomorphic fish people. So they tend to have like fins and stuff, but they'll, you know, they, they otherwise look very human-like. Uh, they also tend to have like really big eyes and stuff like that. They're usually blue or some version of that. Um, I'd say with Breath of the Wild and their version of Zoras, they give them more dolphin or shark-like qualities. Uh, in making them anthropomorphic, so, um, but yeah, you have you have your water dwelling uh, race. I can't think what I was trying to say before is I can't think off the top of my head maybe some other examples of a water dwelling race that isn't Azora. Um, uh, or they, there are those. Um, oh, what are they called? They have a name. Uh, I need to find this out. They're called Perellas, yes. They kind of look like seahorses. And they're like this, this tribe that live in Lake Floria in, in Skyward Sword. Yeah, that's right. That's what their name is. I'm sorry, I just really needed to know because I was like, my brain was like not working. And I was like, yes, they're called Perellas. Um, I only remembered after I had the brain fart what they were called. And I'm like, well, that's great. Anyways, moving on finally to what I accidentally said before, but the Gerudo. So the Gerudo are definitely like the Hylians where they're more human-like. Uh, uh, and uh, they are a desert-dwelling race. Um, they tend to be characterized as like warriors and, some, and stuff like that. In earlier games, they were characterized as thieves before becoming like a merchant warrior class group independent from other civilizations. The Gerudo also tend to be quite isolated, so they tend to just do their own thing. Sometimes they can be troublesome, especially when they were characterized more as thieves. 
uh, before just being, I guess you could say, included in broader society. Um, they are seen, I guess you could you could say, as a bit antagonistic. But once uh, the, I guess you could say, the versions of Gerudo we got over the years changed, um, whether they're benevolent or not, it depends. Breath of the Wild's iteration, I think, is the most developed version we've ever gotten of the Gerudo, where you can really get a sense of their architectural styles, their civilization, how historical they are, because the desert has lots of ruins and whatnot. Um, you definitely get a sense of that uh, with with them and how their society functions. Uh, so they are an actually all women race. Ganon sometimes, or Ganondorf, sorry, so, uh, sometimes is derived from this cultural group, and you're probably wondering how that works if he's supposed to be a man and this is a female-only race. Um, yeah, this has been mentioned a bunch of times, and I, I don't know. Um, yeah, basically, a Gerudo man is born, like, every 100 years or something, and he automatically becomes the chief, and that's how that works. Um but anyways, yeah, just don't worry about the logic of that. The point is, is that as a desert-dwelling race, sometimes they get a bit of a bad name because of Ganondorf, because the Gerudo themselves don't align, they don't align themselves with what he does. It's like he just kind of does his own thing, and they're like, well, crap, now we just seem like really bad people. And in Breath of the Wild, they kind of like, I don't know that they explicitly address that, but it's just more so that it's like, well, it was said that Ganon Calamity Ganon was once a Gerudo man, and that gives us a bad name, so we have a personal stake in taking him down kind of thing. Um, it's not so much that people are, they don't like the Gerudo in the present day, it's just that for the Gerudo themselves, from that kind of cultural standpoint, it's upsetting that the person or entity and whatnot that's caused so much trouble did once hail from the Gerudo race, that kind of a thing. And then in the case of Ocarina of Time, he does explicitly come from the Gerudo uh, camp. He does come from the Gerudo race. So the current like leader, commander of the Gerudo, she is like, I want to take him down because I don't like the way that he does things. Uh, so they're pretty cool. And in terms of other desert dwelling races, I think it just I think it just depends on the games. So I, I know that like I guess with the uh, wait and Majora's Mask, who is there? There's I mean it's actually a lot of there's actually a lot of skeleton people in that kind of desert area, skeletal people undead soldiers and whatnot but anyways yeah i can't really think of desert dwelling races off the top of my head and that does not bother me as much as the water dwelling of uh, water dwelling races so we'll just move on to the final group i want to touch on which are the sheikah who are what i call satellite hylians so the sheikah actually have a quite a quite a connected history with the hylian race so something i did not mention with the hylians before is the hylians were originally sky loftians that would have been what the original Lincoln Zelda from Skyward Sword, that's where they came from. That's the group they came from. Skyloftians were the group of human, like people, like, you know, the group of humans that lived in this kind of island in the sky. The goddess Hylia made it possible that they would live in the sky and not live on the surface. The surface is where all the stuff goes down. That's where everything takes place in the game. So Link will fly through the sky and he'll dive to reach the surface. And then that's how you do your adventuring. Um, so Hylians come from the Skyloftians. The Sheikah um, are kind of like offshoot Hylians, so they're like satellite Hylians, because uh, they're very closely related to Hylians. But the way that they slightly differ is not so much like culturally, but actually, yeah, there are some cultural differences, because the Sheikah essentially found a way to establish themselves as a separate race in a way, um, and the they were typically like uh, covert individuals, they'd be advisors or attendants in the court for the royal family. For example, in Ocarina of Time, Zelda's attendant, her name is Impa, 
uh, she's of the Sheikah clan. She is from the Sheikah group. Now the Sheikah have had a dark history though. So in Skyward Sword, there's only one person that we meet that is a Sheikah individual who also happens to be named Impa. Um, so the thing is, is that they were like lore keepers. They they would knew about history. They had ancient knowledge and things like that. So the Sheikah were different than Highlands in certain capacities. But then as kind of history went on, the problem with the Sheikah was that, well, some of them would do kind of dirty work for certain rulers of Hyrule. And it was just not, it was just very suspicious. It was just not a good time. And so the Sheikah had a, had a bit of a dark history there. So the interpretation of the Sheikah has differed across the many games, and I don't really want to get to that. But they tend to be closely aligned with the royal family, Hylians as a whole, and they also do just tend to know quite a bit about lore and things like that. Uh, they are very knowledgeable in that historical capacity, which is always really cool. So if the Sheikah knows stuff, then you can trust their word on it um, for the most part. Uh, there are definitely other groups, that, cultural groups, that do appear across the franchise, that do exist, such as the Rito, which are like anthropomorphic bird people. You definitely get lots of other uh, cultural groups, but I do not have the time to talk about them, um, because I wanted to describe, uh, or rather dedicate the initial sections, both in part one and what I've just talked about now, just as more like descriptive aspects of this franchise. This is where I get a bit technical. It's time to discuss gameplay mechanics and how you actually play through these games. As you can probably make sense of by this point, Zelda games have appeared on a multitude of consoles because I described a lot, right? There was the Famicom, there's the NES, the Super NES, Nintendo 64, GameCube, Wii U, Nintendo Switch, 3DS, Game Boy Color, Game Boy Advance, like there's Nintendo DS, whatever. There's so many different consoles, right? And I can say for certain that the franchise has long departed from the days of just pressing the A and B buttons. You know, in 1986, things were a lot simpler. You just move the character around, press A and B and hope for the best. But the way this section will work is that obviously I am gonna get a bit more technical, but I'm just gonna try and establish core aspects of gameplay um, along with, I guess you could say, accompanying mechanics that I think are unique to this franchise, I suppose. Like that's one way of putting it, I guess. I don't know. Um, this is all to say that I'm not going to get too descriptive with these technical details because there's just, it, it, it can be complicated. Like I think Breath of the Wild, there's a bit of a learning curve because even if you've played previous Legend of Zelda games, it doesn't control the same. Like it's not like if you played Skyward Sword, oh, those skills would immediately transfer over to Legend of Zelda. It's a bit more of like just game playing experience in general. You got to figure out what's intuitive and what's not. And then that's just kind of how you figure things out. But if you're new to certain Legend of Zelda games, then some some of them can just be really complicated. Uh, so again, I'm not gonna talk about what buttons do what. That's There's no point in doing that. Um, I will conclude this section by also just talking about some, I guess you have fun items and equipment that Link can acquire. Uh, most of which are important beyond just being useful. Uh, so I'll get into that later, but let's start off with gameplay. So Zelda games feature mixed gameplay, incorporating puzzles, action, adventure, and battle into its gameplay along with exploration. So that's what I was also mentioning when it comes to its genre. The gameplay as a result will also, it's also a mixed bag. Unlike side-scrollers like Mario, Zelda games definitely require more from the player. Additional and or optional quests, like I mentioned before, typically exist in the games to, you know, reward the player which then emphasizes the exploration of gameplay. Using the very first game as an example, you know, 
back in 1986, folks, you need to explore as much as possible and acquire the right items in order to discover hidden areas, rooms, and so forth. Nothing is very obvious in that game, to be completely honest. But when you enter a dungeon, of which there are nine in total, like that includes the very last one of the game, you need to focus more on how you defeat the enemies and solve puzzles that emerge in the form of labyrinthine dungeons. So within these dungeons are typically three key items. I'm mentioning this before the items themselves because this is actually just typical across most games in the franchise because a lot of the majority of Zelda games feature dungeon roaming experiences. So the three things you will find in dungeons are you'll find the map, the compass, and a boss key. The map is self-explanatory, um, I think, shows you where to go. The compass shows you where treasure can be found in the dungeon. Um, and there'll be some kind of marker, like an X or a flashing dot or something like that, just depends on the game. And then the boss key is important for accessing the final room of the dungeon that houses the boss in question. So you cannot get to that room unless you have the boss key. Um, the dungeons themselves will also have other locked doors and you'll be able to find small keys that will unlock those locked doors. But those small keys do not help you for the actual door that where, where the you know final battle of the dungeon takes place. That's why you need the boss key. The boss is special. While actually controlling Link, most games rely on a hack and slash style combat instead of being strategic. This is, I think, something I briefly mentioned either in part one or something. I don't remember when I said this, but uh, you just kind of have to just spam the button and just you know hit hit the enemy, and then that gets the job done. Breath of the Wild, I mean, takes that a couple steps further by like yes you can just kind of hit them repeatedly with whatever weapon you want to use but it's like uh, there's there's other things like you have to dodge there's strafing there's backflips there's all kind of stuff you just got to take all those things into consideration it's it's fun um this is to say that while the controls have certainly become more complicated over time as can be said for breath of the wild all you need to do is just attack and spam that one button and I don't mind that at all, especially because you have to really pick at your brain for certain dungeons and certain games. Like you have to really think for some of them and be like, okay, I can't mess this up because if I do, that's a problem. Or it's like, okay, well I did this. So now I got to go do this or because the map and the compass don't necessarily give you any kind of direction in what to do. It just tells you where things are and where to go. But like uh, beyond that, you're still left to your own devices. All of Majora's Mask is a headache in terms of figuring out even where to go. So again, I'm fine with the combat being straightforward. Like with that game, it's just because things are happening on a time limit, it's just a constant cycle of stress. Because even when you complete stuff and it's like, hey, I saved this one area. Um, now I gotta go rewind time and start over and then save this other place. And the sad part is, is that you cannot save all four principal locations that need to be saved in like one timeline, you have to spread it across a bunch of different time cycles. I don't know. Anyways, it's just, it's sad and stressful. Of course, the way that, you know, game playing uh, can become slightly more complicated is if you need to use like an item in a certain way, like a bow and arrow, um, or there's like some kind of gimmick in order to defeat the boss. Typically it's as simple as shoot it in the eye. Like a lot of Legend of Zelda bosses need to be defeated by shooting their eyeball. And it's like, well, that's straightforward enough. Some of them are slightly more complicated um, uh, and whatnot. Um, some items also, like they may have slightly more complicated uses in the dungeon or you need to get creative with it. Like it won't be just as straightforward as using the thing and then it achieves whatever you're trying to accomplish. Like there'll be some kind of like catch to it, um, especially as you make more progress. I think the puzzles become more complicated anyway. Um, 
because the attacking function is consistently simplistic. So I think that's the trade-off. So basically to just kind of summarize what I've been saying up until this point, the overworld is where I think things are slightly more simple and you don't quite have to think as much, but then when you have your dungeon areas um, and whatnot that you have to, there are puzzles, um, that's where you gotta, you have to think a little bit more because it will incorporate just things you would do in the overworld as well. Like just, you know, walking around, maybe slashing some enemies, collecting items. You gotta think of those things too in the dungeon while also solving the puzzles. Uh, and, and yeah, that's, that's fun. Usually Link will begin the adventure, begin his adventure, I should say, with three hearts, a counter that can be increased over time through varying different methods across the many games that appear in this franchise. Link will always have the master sword or at the very least a sword in hand, along with the shield, usually in the form of the Hylian shield, but it, it can differ. Um, which allows you to deflect attacks where possible or just prevent you from taking damage. Because if someone like a, like a Wolfos, for example, which is basically just like a wolf and it's got these big claws, if it tries to slash at you, but you draw your shield, well, it can't hurt you. But you also have to attack it. So you just, it's like, it, it's not very strategic, but you just have to be smart about when you attack and then spam the button. There's so many different swords and shields that appear independent of these two very notable, famous weapons, because I'd say the Master Sword and the Hylian Shield as, you know, emblems of this franchise, they're also pretty well known, like the Triforce. Um, so, but, but there's like other weapons and stuff that Link can use. Uh, that, that's a separate discussion though. Like there's so many, it depends on the game. Sometimes there's lots of weapons, sometimes there's not. Like Breath of the Wild has so many weapons. My goodness. Now as for items or equipment that Link can acquire, so I'm going to talk about that now, because I think, I think the gameplay that's all there really is to say about it. And I don't want to get any more technical than that. Um, I'll talk about items um, and equipment uh, that Link can acquire. I'm not going to go over too many, just going to talk about, I guess, some examples that I'd like to mention and just give really basic descriptions or as basic descriptions as I can give because I digress so much. Starting off with the bow and arrow. So typically in certain games, sometimes the quiver for the for the arrows come separately, but I think in most games, the, the arrows just come directly in a quiver. So once you get the quiver and you get arrows, you're like, you're good. Um, but yeah, bow and arrow. This is a really common weapon that Link uses across many of the games, uh, independent of how their gameplay varies. So it's really cool that this is like another one of those things that you typically can associate with Link beyond the sword but beyond him wielding a sword and shield uh sometimes there's other more divine bows and arrows out there um uh sometimes it's just standard run-of-the-mill normal bows and arrows and that's that is nice that is what it is link obviously wielding a sword and shield does not allow for very ranged attacks right you want to shoot from a distance well that's what a bow and arrow is for then next up there are bombs. So bombs are, they go kaboom. And they're one of those random items you can potentially find in like the overworld in the grass, cause that makes so much sense. Or you can buy them from a shop, which feels way, like this makes way more sense. It's just more logical. Um, but yeah, bombs explode things. Normally there'll be some kind of indication on like a wall or a block or just some, or maybe on the ground itself. You see those cracks and it's like, yeah, that's, that is something that needs to be exploded. Then you do the exploding and you're like, yes, I found a secret area or I found the path to get to the next location in the dungeon or something like that. Um, and yeah, that's pretty cool. Then there's bottles. Bottles can hold various drinks. So there's um, uh, milk. Sometimes you can get milk and that'll help replenish some of your health. You can get like red potions that'll replenish health. 
in certain games that utilize the stamina mechanic where Link can run out of stamina if he does a certain attack or action, um, you can get like a green potion and that'll replenish stamina. Bottles can also hold fairies. Fairies are just these little glowing balls of light with wings. There'll be a fairy fountain. You store one of them in a bottle. If you ever like die in battle, the fairy will revive you automatically. Um, as opposed to you having to manually replenish your health with like the red potion, for example, because it does not automatically do, like, it, it doesn't automatically heal your health if you take a lot of damage kind of thing. You have to manually use the item kind of thing. But at least with fairies, they just revive you instantly. Not all games have the fairy mechanic though, so that is what it is. Um, then, uh, so bottles are nice. I like bottles. Then there's the mirror shield. The mirror shield appear appears in various different games with differing forms, obviously. But the mirror shield can, I think, absorb certain attacks and deflect like magical attacks, I think. Like, I think that's the selling point because Link's normal shield or the Hylian shield certainly cannot do that. But uh, the mirror shield is cool. It is a special shield. Then there's the power bracelet. Uh, power bracelet. So, in the original uh, The Legend of Zelda, uh, Link can acquire something known as a power bracelet, and that'll move. Uh, that'll allow him to move uh, heavy, you know, stones or obstacles, and then that can usually lead to like a set of stairs or something like that, whether it be in the overworld or in the dungeons. Uh, a different version of that is something in Ocarina of Time where Link can pick up certain, they're called bomb flowers. He can pick up bomb flowers if he wears, I don't know if it's, I don't remember specifically if it's called the power, bla a power bracelet, but it's something to that effect where he's able to lift up something because he's wearing this bracelet. So that's cool. Then certain games feature different color tunics. So Link has his standard tunic, but then there's other tunics that can, uh, that have properties that uh, are beneficial to Link, such as, this makes no sense, by the way, but there are tunics that can help you withstand scorching heat, and then there's tunics that can help you withstand, uh, like, breathing underwater. Um, yeah, makes complete sense. Totally logical. Pretty cool. Then there's um, things like iron boots. So this was the thing I think I was mentioning before when, was this in part one? I don't know when I said this, but if you're, yeah, I think it's part one where if you're in an underwater area, the iron boots are so heavy, they'll just sink you to the ground. You wear that with your waterproof or your tunic that allows you to breathe underwater, then you can just walk underwater and you're, you're it's, it's just not that difficult. It's just a good time. You're just like, yeah, I'm just walking underwater. Super easy. Um, there's of course so many other items I'll be linking, uh, in the description, there'll be a link, <laughs> link to, uh, uh, it's not a master list, but it's pretty comprehensive about different items you can find in all the all the Legends of the games. So if you want to check that out, you can and just see what else there are. There's some overlap with a bunch of these items, like the mirror shield, like I said, appears in a bunch of different games. Bow and arrow is pretty like pretty constant, like it comes in most games um, uh, and whatnot. Um, so you can check that out if you want, because uh, that's that's about all I'm going to cover here. Um, but yeah, so the thing, just to sum up with the uh, gameplay, there's just a lot going on. The combat mechanics are straightforward in certain ways, but then for other aspects of gameplay, depending on where you're located in the game or what's expected of you at that stage in the game, um, you have to be considerate of a bunch of other things, such as solving puzzles. So it's not purely action all the time, and there's that aspect of adventure taking over at certain points. So it being a mixed genre game, and then also having mixed gameplay as well, allows for, you know, 
when you play through the game, it's it's not like it's static. You're not ever just doing the same thing over. Like, yeah, sure, the dungeon format itself can be kind of redundant and can be a little bit repetitive, but the puzzles that you will solve in the, each of those dungeons will differ because there'll be some kind of different gimmick or element to it. So if you're in the forest area, well, the stuff you do in the forest is gonna differ from what you do in the mountain or what you do in the water area, like that kind of thing. Um, so it's really cool. And now it's time to talk about the role of music in this franchise because boy, does music play a role. It's time to get into that. Starting off this section is something I've intentionally omitted from previous talking points. This is something I actually went out of my way to not discuss because I need to talk about it here. Instruments play a big role in select Zelda games, but even then, instruments frequently appear as useful, tool, uh, useful tools that go beyond that of the role of typical items like weapons and equipment. In the case of Link's Awakening, for example, the way to wake up the windfish is to collect all the instruments hidden away on the island. The nightmares are protecting the like location of that instrument. They're blocking the passage to it. You defeat that nightmare, it allows you into the room where that instrument is located. And then you just repeat that process for the remaining nightmares. But you're collecting a bunch of instruments. You hold a freaking concert for the windfish, you know? Ocarina of Time is entirely hinged and centered on music as its main gimmick, as it's called Ocarina of Time, which is an instrument. That's not proper grammar at all. Ocarina of Time is an instrument? No, the ocarina is a wind instrument. It's like a something described as a vessel flute. You can look it up yourself. Ocarinas are cool. Now that the grammar has been fixed, you can listen to the rest of the episode. And Link acquires an ocarina. He must play the ocarina in order to learn certain songs of which have different properties. Some will open up uh, doors to secret areas. Some like just function as a password. So it's like the only way to get into the place is if he plays the song. Um, later, especially as the game becomes more complicated, you learn what are called warp songs. So it's like if you play this song, it'll actually just fast travel YouTube application. And that's really cool because they introduced um, the recorder in the very, very first game ever. They introduced the recorder, which could allow you to teleport from a like from one location to a different location using this like really funny wind gust. But yeah, um, Majora's Mask uh, functions on a time limit. And in the remake, the I don't I don't actually remember if this is in the original game, but I do know it's in the remake. The ocarina that Link still has with him allows Link to slow down time or skip ahead in time because the whole point is that you will obviously you will always have to go back in time before you can eventually reach the stage where it's possible to beat the game. But um, you can play different songs on the ocarina in order to uh, make further progress. And as well, uh, there's another gimmick in Majora's Mask where you wear masks. That's its main gimmick, actually. The ocarina is secondary, but the instrument changes and it doesn't stay in ocarina depending on what mask you wear, um, which is really cool. Uh, and then also the songs as well are completely different from the way that the songs function in Ocarina of Time, but it's still very much present. Skyward Sword uses uh, has the harp as its kind of main instrument that you play and that's how you learn certain songs. Um, so that's, uh, that's really cool. Um, fun fact about the recorder in The Legend of Zelda in 1986. A fun fact about the recorder is it's actually instrumental in defeating an enemy known as a dig dogger because you get a hint in the dungeon where it's like, it doesn't like this sound. So you gotta find the recorder, get the recorder. Once you eventually get to the room where the dig dogger is located, play it, and then it just freezes up and you're like, ah, I'm just gonna go, just gonna defeat it now. It's gonna be great. And then it is. 
Um, so this is all to say that music is important in setting the atmosphere because all video games have a score, right? This, this is to say that music is important in setting the atmosphere, but it's also integral to the gameplay itself. So when you're playing through the game, you're gonna play some music as well, you know? Um, Ocarina of Time is all about that. You hear music around you, but then you also, you know, get to play the music. And actually, uh, one thing I wanna mention about Majora's Mask is the fact that when you are in Clock Town, the music differs for each day. So the tune that you hear on the first day is you know kind of nice and it's like okay i can it's just it's just a nice kind of chill chill beat this is nice this is peaceful or whatever like it's unassuming i suppose then by the second day the music speeds up slightly more um and they add slightly more instrumentation to it or rather just i guess more notes where it kind of adds a different layer to the music and also because it's speeding up, it definitely feels a little bit more foreboding. It's like, okay, what's gonna happen? By the third day, the the it speeds up even more, and then it enters this kind of like semi-minor key, I suppose, where as part of the score, it almost sounds like there's like a thunderstorm coming in a way. Like it's it evokes that sense, even though the music isn't explicitly doing that. And then when you enter the final hours before the world is supposed to end in, in Majora's Mask, when you enter the final hours and you're in clock town you hear some of the most foreboding morose and like just down music ever really i think i should link it in the description but it's just so kind of like sad and like it, it definitely feels world ending you you see it around you because the uh, the sky changes color too just like in ocarina of time with the castle town being destroyed and all just like that uh it, 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 there's there's no one there it's just desolate it's just you're you're left with the sense of dread yes that's the word there's there's this building sense of dread when the music changes but then when you enter the final hours it's just so 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 like i don't know almost like not suffocating i think that's a bit too dramatic but something to that effect where it's just like it really does feel like it's gonna end you know um and it's almost a bit scary um, but yeah, as a result of all of this happening, is that many of the themes that have emerged from this franchise are individualized and become very memorable in the process. So it's like Hyrule Field um, in Ocarina of Time has its own music. Now, the music does appear in like maybe one or two other locations that are not specific to Hyrule Field. But when you hear that music, you're like, yes, that is the music for Hyrule Field. Um, so with that knowledge in place and knowing that instruments do have such an important role uh, where you can play instruments and it helps you with things. Link also has an ocarina in Link's Awakening, I believe as well. You learn songs on that too. Yep, that's correct. Yeah, you actually do have an ocarina in there as, as well. Um, I'm pretty sure Ocarina of Time as a game as well heavily popularized the instrument of the ocarina. So I'm like, I think that also was like an added thing that happened. Not that ocarinas weren't cool beforehand, but the game just, because it emphasizes it so much, it becomes cooler. But now it's time to talk about composers. So as a quick note, I will be mostly focusing on composers that have contributed to more, like can have contributed more than once to this series, rather than just like, I guess, individuals, uh, especially because this kind of helps for allowing to construct a scheme on sonic coherence. And what I mean by that is that when, when you establish like a sound, it just it just makes everything really fit or at the very least when you establish like a very key integral central theme to your franchise and whatnot the way that that reappears and things like that can be really cool and how certain composers do that that just can allow for more coherence uh in in sound it, it helps to 
elevate how memorable the music becomes. I also just love Legend of Zelda music. It's just so cool. So I'm very happy to talk about this. So starting us off, we have Koji Kondo, who's a longtime composer for the franchise, and he is responsible for composing the original theme music. He composed the piece in only one day, and this is because the team only found out at the last minute that the music they planned to use for The Legend of Zelda was actually still copyrighted, and that song was Bolero. Um, this is what I call a happy accident because this theme music has been reintroduced, revamped, and just referenced so many times in succeeding iterations uh, since uh, its conception, making it the signal song of the series as a whole. I've uh, linked a video in the description uh, so you can hear part of it. It's like a long looped video, but you only need to hear a certain amount of it to know like just the theme on its own. You hear this music and you know it's Legend of Zelda, like there's just no mistaking it. Other notable composers include Mahito Yokota, who did the orchestration for Twilight Princess and adapted the original score of Ocarina of Time for the 3DS. Then there's Toru uh, Minegishi, who helped Koji Kondo do the composition for Majora's Mask and its remake, Wind Waker, and Phantom Hourglass. And then there's Hajime Wakai, who also worked on Wind Waker, was the sound director for Skyward Sword, and also the sound director for Breath of the Wild. Some people like Shiho Fuji, who worked on Skyward Sword, also worked on games outside of the Zelda franchise, such as Super Mario Odyssey. She was, I think, one of the, she did like the music, explicitly the music for that game. And that's cool. Super Mario Odyssey has a lot of fun music. Um, and I, I do kind of, I guess, I think it's just kind of fun trivia that there's like overlap between these composers. Um, I forget which of the composers, uh, I forget. What was her name? She also did some like uh, composition for Pokemon. And she's actually, I think, slightly more prominent in her compositions for Pokemon rather than Zelda. Like, I think she worked on one title, but then there's like, she worked on like Pokemon Black and White and like Black 2 and White 2. I, I forget though. Um, but anyways, just cool things like that. Um, so yeah, I just, I think like the way that these composers, they construct their music. I will add that with, uh, Skyward Sword, they were definitely going for a more orchestral feel, so there's a lot more strings and things like that. Um, it's also worth mentioning that with the older the game is, the less complicated the composition will be. The reason there's only like uh, there's different like sound bites that you get in the original like The Legend of Zelda. Um, you have some sound effects more like, but the music there's only like three different tracks because there's the overworld music which is the main like theme um and then there's uh then there's the dungeon music and then the final dungeon has its own music that's unique to it so it's like you you only have like certain like compositions that are actually like unique or or more full because otherwise everything else is just like a sound effect such as when you collect a rupee or when you um, get an item or, you know, when you're low on health, like things like that. Uh, those are just more like sound effects rather than part of like the actual score. Um, so the farther you go down the line and the closer you get to the present, obviously the music becomes uh, more complicated. Um, and when they remaster the music, they tend to obviously add more instrumentation to it. So it will, it will sound, uh, more clean or maybe slightly more polished than their original uh their original sound and adapting music or adapting uh, yeah adapting music from an, like a previous game for a new console a, a different sound system different engines and things like that like it's it's it definitely it's it's easy to tell where the changes are possible um 
uh, or sorry, where the changes do occur. And it's it's just kind of cool to, to notice these things because I like that Skyward Sword has that more kind of orchestral feel. Certain themes are very flute heavy, like very woodwind instrument heavy um, uh, and, and things like that. Um, and then something like Skyward Sword, where it is almost like a full-blown orchestra because like uh, the main theme music for that game, which is pretty understated because you hear it when you first start the game and then you hear parts of it when you get to the final battle of the game, but you otherwise don't hear it at all, I don't think. Um, it, it, it is like, uh, and, and hearing the live version of it, so cool. So, so, so cool. I cannot express how much I, I, I do really love the score from that game. And they have one of the coolest interpretations of the original theme music. Um, when you enter Hyrule Castle, first of all, it's just like torn down and it's like, it's like only a short, like a, uh, what is it? It's a shadow. Um, it's almost like a ghost Hyrule Castle in, in Breath of the Wild because it's, it's so emptied, it's so ruined, it's so kind of ridden, like just overridden by enemies. And it's like things like that. So you walk in there and it's like a very kind of melancholic area to enter, but it has, it adds like a march like almost like a military march to that, like the music that plays there. And it's further integrated with the original theme music. And I'm like, that is so cool. What a cool interpretation of the original theme music in a way that's like, it just feels very core and central to the franchise itself. So um, the music, the composition of overworld music or the ambiance of certain Zelda games, really cool, really developed, very immersive. You are sucked right into that world when it comes to these themes. And with certain other games like Ocarina of Time, uh, especially games like that, where music is so important to the story as well, you get you hear individual themes because all the warp songs have their own tune to it uh, and things like that. Zelda has her own lullaby, Zelda's lullaby. That is also like a very important theme for that game. Um, so it's, it's things like that, that just really make Legend of Zelda really cool for that. Like they just they just decided that beyond it being like a gimmick of some kind, there'd be like lore implicated in it. There'd be a storytelling implicated in it because the fact that the goddess Hylia, she wields the sword, but she also has a harp and that harp becomes something that Link will use later. So it's like the instruments matter just beyond like being there. The instruments are important. I'm like, that's a cool thing. That's a cool material uh, thing to make important because it's not a weapon. And you know, there's lots of games that have weapons and things like that, but I don't, I, I, I think I need to expand my horizons more to make a more conclusive point here, but I don't really know many other games that kind of use music in this way, where beyond just the traditional score that you need to have for video games, instruments are important. They're a part of the experience and Legend of Zelda just does that really well. So, you know, with all this to say, it's, uh, I think it's, I think it's time to conclude this episode and just kind of see what, you know, big takeaways we have when it comes to understanding the Legend of Zelda franchise. things that we've learned we've learned and what can we take away when it comes to understanding this franchise well i think when it comes to its genre and its gameplay it has a really kind of unique mixed bag take on things where you know yes it can be formulaic at times and sometimes it can 
it can feel a little repetitive. But you're definitely going to have a lot of fun playing Legend of Zelda games, especially when you know what to do. They're definitely a lot of fun. Um, and uh, even in certain games where it can be a little bit more morose or maybe a bit more kind of dark in its themes, there's a way to find a certain level of enjoyment or maybe that is just the experience that you have with it. And it's like you, I don't know how emotionally involved people tend to get in these kind of games. But I know with me that I'm like with certain like side quests, especially in Majora's Mask, I'm like, oh my god, this is so sad. Why is this a thing? Why are they why are they staying in this town when they know the world is gonna end? Like they're not gonna leave, they're just gonna uh why is this a thing? But it's like, you know, it's it's so interesting and it kind of helps with the world building and it adds a little something to the game, making it more than just a game. It, like, it, it makes certain things feel very immersive and real. And I'm like, that's cool. And I think that helps, again, because it has this kind of mixed genre going on. Lore is deeply intertwined with storytelling and the universes of each game. And I think, in their own right, each independent game, their approach to lore and the way that they decide to do things, um, they, they're still pretty good on that front. So I'm like, technically you don't need to play the entire repertoire of Legend of Zelda games to get a sense that these games care about their, you know, kind of history and, and, and ancient knowledge and things like that. Because uh, going back to the Link's Awakening example, there's actually like an area that you have to visit where there's this like wall painting of the windfish. And that's the first time you actually see what the windfish is supposed to look like, which by the way, is actually a whale, but it's called the windfish. But I'm like, okay, I guess that is what it is, but it's a whale. It's not a fish. It's a whale. It's called the windfish, but it's a whale. Don't know why that bothers me so much. Um, but yeah, so like things like that, where, you know, there's a uh, material evidence of history there's the oral tradition where someone will tell you something based off of a history of people reciting this knowledge to other people um it's like i know this thing because an ancestor of mine consistently passed it down in the family the sheikah are like that by the way that's kind of how they circulate their ancient knowledge and how they are how they function as lore keepers they just know these things you know um but that you know be, these kind of elements they get they just get naturally integrated into the storytelling and the experiences uh that you know link goes through you as the player go through and that's really fun having the fictional chronology helps to really elevate and emphasize these developed storylines for whether it be for other groups characters and your principal trio of link zelda and ganon um because it just expands on all these different details. How does Hylia function into a game where she doesn't appear? Because these chronologies were constructed retro, uh, retroactively. They did not begin this franchise with the intention that there would be, you know, very complicated and lore and stuff. This was something that developed like over the course of time. And I guess in a sense, naturally came into being because they decided to like, uh, what is it? Incorporate lore in certain games and then just decided to take it a step further where Actually, a lot of the core series Legend of Zelda games function within that umbrella, that broader umbrella. You have your three primordial go goddesses. They created the Triforce. The goddess Hylia helped to kind of facilitate certain things to make it possible for someone like the hero or the princess to utilize the Triforce. But even the use of the Triforce should be like a last ditch effort. It should not be the go-to unless things are really bad. Um, and also the role of the Triforce, it depends on the universe, it depends on the timeline and things like that. So games like Wind Waker, Phantom Hourglass, it actually doesn't really matter what their commercial success was because they have their own role in the lore too. They have their own 
uh, games like that have their own parts in these different timelines. One of the more prominent ones where a lot of, uh, not a lot of the games per se, but I think the majority of older games appear and it's the hero defeated, where you're constantly on the losing side and it's because the hero didn't win in Ocarina of Time. So it's like the construction of these fictional chronologies is not based on what actually happens in the game and your experience in the game. It's the possibility that the outcome could be different from a storytelling perspective. And I'm like, that's really cool. That's uh, really interesting to me. Um, and I just as a quick note, something else we can take away is the intelligence of enemies. We have the nightmares protecting the instruments on Koalin Island. We have Ganon and a lot of his ambiguous, uh, like his amb his ambiguity as a villain in certain capacities, because it's easy to tell that he's very ambitious, power hungry. He wants to be the most powerful person in the room. But then you have situations, which I've talked about at length in my uh, model of triangulation series episode thing of a Jake. I talk about at length on this topic where what does Calamity Ganon in Breath of the Wild, what is he actually aware of? What To what degree is he doing things intentionally? And to like on the flip side of that, is he just doing things rampantly because he's technically this kind of, uh, you know, uh, what's it called? He's like a, like, I don't know, he's this weird entity. He he doesn't feel very tangible. He's not like a very material villain in a in, in like that traditional sense. Not until you actually enter the room where he's waiting for you. Um, but, and the way that you see him in cutscenes, he, again, does not feel very tangible. It's like he just has this like spiritual impact, but then also very real material impact. It's, it's hard to describe without getting into the nitty gritty of it, but the intelligence of the enemies is also something that's really interesting, which is that obviously I haven't talked technically a whole lot about them independent of Ganon and like the nightmares, for example. Um, I haven't talked a whole lot on that topic, but it's like, to what degree do they know things and how active are they in trying to stop Link from accomplishing what Link needs to get done? And that's always a really interesting point because uh, if Ganon's your starting point and all the enemies listen to him, then of course, their behavior is actually just an extension of what he wants to get done. And it's just it's just a really interesting discussion, I think. And then I think, uh, I guess the uh, one other maybe takeaway per se as well is that with developed cultural groups as well, because they can have their own storylines, they have their own histories because of constructed chronologies, um, is that they're not just like random characters floating about in the universe. They are people you can talk to, interact to. You can learn more about their cultural group by talking to them. You get, a, you get a sense of different civilizations in the land of Hyrule um, and not just people who happen to be living there. I mean, Hylians I consider to be like, the, like they're the more average race, right? They technically don't have a lot going on, um, but their role in lore is actually kind of cool too because they do hail from the Skyloftians. That's where they originally come from, the people who lived in the sky. It's always a really cool thing, especially considering what is potentially gonna unfold with the untitled Breath of the Wild sequel, where it looks like part of the game is gonna take place in the sky. And there's also a lot of like other similarities that they've been hinting at with Skyward Sword. And I'm like, the references to Skyward Sword, I think are cool, I appreciate this. So going forward, I don't know that I wanna talk a whole lot about what what's in store for us next when it comes to Legend of Zelda. It's more just that like, well, there's all these different like, you know, kind of forms of gameplay that the franchise has explored. Some things have really worked, like have worked really well. And then there's other things that were quite different, but still also worked really well, such as Ocarina of Time succeeding, I think for completely different reasons than Breath of the Wild. Like those are two very different games despite belonging to the same franchise. So it's like, where does Breath of the Wild 2, what's it, where, where is it gonna fit? How, to, to what degree 
will it be similar to Skyward Sword? Um, what's going to change from what Breath of the Wild introduced? Because Breath of the Wild is, again, it is completely different from preceding Legend of Zelda games. There's no other Legend of Zelda game before it that's like it. Um, so it's like, I don't know, where 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 do we go from here? Um, and a very uh, interesting question to ask, but one that we will not have the answer to for a long time. And the final note I want to make, folks, music is important in a lot of these games. But have your instruments, get your ocarinas, like, you know, uh, form up, break out your orchestra. Music is important, folks. And I think that's just a really cool thing that they decide to incorporate music in the way that they do. Wow, that took a long time. This was the Lore Research Lab's findings on what there is to know about The Legend of Zelda. Thanks for tuning in, folks, and I'll see you next time.